from HerbMentor.com, this is Herb Mentor Radio. You are listening to Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is fermentation revivalist Sander Katz. Sander is author of Wild Fermentation and the brand new book, The Art of Fermentation, an in-depth exploration of essential concepts and processes from around the world. It gives practical information on fermenting vegetables, fruits, grains, milk, beans, meats, and more. It has a foreword by Michael Pollan and is published by Chelsea Green. You can visit Sander at wildfermentation.com, which is an amazing online resource. Sander, welcome back to Herb Mentor Radio. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, and uh, you know, you've made me a real happy guy because like Terry Gross is my radio hero, you know, and and uh, so if I can't actually ever be interviewed by Terry herself, just to be able to like interview someone she interviewed in the same week is like awesome. <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> so I'm feeling kind of famous, you know, by proxy here. <laughs> so it was. Well, a- it, it, it's. It's a pleasure to be back on your show, and uh, it's a pleasure to have uh, so much interest in uh, in the things I'm talking about. So since I interviewed you last, many HerbMentor.com members uh, have gotten into fermentation as a result, so I've collected a bunch of questions from them. But before we get to that, um, I thought we'd do a little refresher for those who, um, who've, who've listened to before but or also are brand new to this whole idea of fermentation. So for those herbal folks here who are not yet aware of fermented foods, Sandra, just, uh, what's a, just a brief overview of fermented foods? Well, um, uh, broadly speaking, uh, fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. So fermented foods and beverages are those foods and beverages which have been um, um, you know, transformed by, by microorganisms in, 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 in some way. Now, people with a biology background might think about fermentation in a more uh, restrictive sense, uh, that it is um, anaerobic metabolism, the production of energy without oxygen, and certainly most of the you know, classic fermented foods and beverages are anaerobic processes uh, that don't uh, uh, require oxygen. But you know, certain foods um, uh, that are created by microbial action actually require oxygen, and they are universally regarded as fermented foods. So I prefer to work with a broader lay definition that fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. Um, okay. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was wondering about, like, I hear about lacto-fermentation, then there's the kind of fermentation where you're making beer or wine. Is there a difference there? Well, sure. I mean, the difference is the types of microorganisms. So lacto-fermentation um, uh, is sometimes used to describe fermentations uh, by lactic acid bacteria. And um, uh, sauerkraut and kimchi and pickles and other and other forms of fermented vegetables are examples of uh, of, of lacto fermented foods. Um, uh, cer- certainly, uh, you know, yogurt, kefir, and other styles of fermented milks are are, are also lacto fermented foods. Um, and whereas alcoholic beverages are uh, a- a- as well, a- well, alcoholic beverages are primarily produced by yeast which are fungi um, that consume sugars and, and, and turn them into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Um, bread also involves yeast. Uh, in um, most contemporary yeasted breads, people work with pure yeasts. Um, in most traditional situations, before yeast was isolated, people worked with mixed cultures. That's what a sourdough is an example of, a mixed culture that includes both yeast 
and lactic acid bacteria. So these processes are not always um, uh, you know, completely separate processes, and often you'll find the organisms together. In the natural world, you always find the organisms together. Organisms exist in communities. Um, you know, it's only um, you know, really since the emergence of microbiology in the second half of the 19th century that anyone's ever been able to isolate uh, single types of organisms and work with them alone. All the traditional ferments are, are, are a mixed culture fermentations. Okay. So then how does fermentation um, like fit into our history? Is this something that's been going on like okay, like canning, for example, for storing food is, is fairly recent, correct? And, and, sure. I mean, and, canning is an invention of the 19th century. In France, they're still called canning apertization uh, because they remember the name of the Frenchman, Nicolas Apert, who invented the process um, uh, early in the 19th century. Fermentation is ancient. I mean, humans did not invent fermentation. I mean, cells in our bodies are capable of fermentation. Uh, you know, fermenting, you know, the, an, an, an acidifying fermentation, uh, you know, that happens in women's bodies actually is essential to human reproduction. So, um, you know, fermentation is simply a, a, a biological process, a natural phenomenon. Um, and, you know, all of the foods that people eat, all of the products of agriculture are covered with microorganisms, and there's a certain inevitability to microbial changes. Um, most of the food that we reject, what we throw into the compost, we're rejecting it because microorganisms have digested our food in ways that we consider it to be rotting or stale. Um, mm. What, what fermentation is is, is is a channeling of these sort of inevitable life forces that are present on our food. Um, uh, you know, people learned you know, through uh, observation of what happens and trial and error of, you know, basically manipulating environmental conditions for storing food, people learned techniques to, uh, to guide the microbial development of, of, of food. So, for instance, if you take a piece of cabbage and leave it on your kitchen counter exposed to the air, you could leave it there for a week, you could leave it there for a month, you could leave it there for a year, and it's never going to turn itself into sauerkraut. What will grow are molds. Mold spores are present on all vegetables, um, and if they're left exposed to the air, that's what's eventually going to start to grow. The technique for making sauerkraut is to simply chop up the vegetables and salt them to pull liquid out of the vegetables and then stuff it into a jar or other vessel so that the vegetables are submerged. And it's that submerging that is, is the environmental manipulation that protects the vegetables from air and oxygen, makes it impossible for those molds to grow except perhaps on the surface. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, 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 the submerged, and, and on the submerged vegetables, lactic acid bacteria, which are also always present on vegetables, are what develops. So, so that's, a, that's a good, clear example of what I mean when I say manipulating environmental conditions to encourage the growth of you know, some type of organism that's present rather than some other type of organism that's also present. Well, that sounds very simple, but you know, often people are are, are afraid of bacteria 
like you said, molds and bacteria for the most part. So is, have you found there's a, a fear people have to overcome when one wanting to enter this world of actually doing something as simple as make pickles or sauerkraut? Well, you know, all of us in our time have been indoctrinated into what I call the, the war on bacteria. And it's this generalized idea that uh, bacteria are bad, bacteria are dangerous, we have to be afraid of bacteria, and in fact our lives would be better if we could simply eradicate all bacteria. Um, you know, this is a misguided idea. You know, we could not live without bacteria. We could not function. Um, you know, I already mentioned that bacteria enable human beings to reproduce effectively. They enable us to digest our food. They enable us to assimilate nutrients. Um, they play a huge role in our immune functioning. Um, uh, you, you know, and you know, really more and more important you know, roles for bacteria are being recognized um, uh, every day. J just this week, um, the uh, Human Microbiome Project published their, their results, and it was the first mapping of the genetics of the bacteria in our bodies, and it was a recognition by geneticists that, that, that human beings are more than individual organisms. That, that we are these, you know, complex communities that consist, you know, not only of our sort of single human organism, but of trillions and trillions of microbial organisms that are not parasitic or, uh, you know, just along for a free ride, but rather, you know, they are mutualistic with us and they, they actually provide us with, you know, incredible functional uh, mm. benefits that we would not have without them. And, and in fact, you know, human beings, every other animal, every plant, every fungus, no other form of life could exist without bacteria. So we have this bacteria, and we, you know, we can't exist without this bacteria, and in fact, we're probably nothing but just large assemblages of bacteria in our own organism ourselves, right? Um, so, like, how are Western lifestyles being detrimental to this, and then how then can fermented foods play a role in helping this? Um, well, I mean, there are all of these factors in our contemporary lives, the chemicals that we're, that we're using in our, in our daily lives mm -hmm. that, that, that kill bacteria. Um, you know, every municipal water system, the water is chlorinated. The chlorine is put into the water specifically to kill bacteria. You know, antibiotic drugs. Um, uh, you know, certainly, certainly they, they, they save many lives, but everybody agrees that they're wildly overprescribed, and even more so than in, among human beings, um, you know, animals in, um, you know, confinement agriculture are, 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 are fed huge quantities of antibiotics every day. Um, and, and, and people are eating uh, uh, meat and milk that carries residue of those antibiotics, and there's mm -hmm. an accumulation of all this antibiotic use in the water table. So all of us are, are, are drinking uh, you know, low levels of antibiotics in the water that we drink every day, no matter how pristine the source of our water. Uh, and then compound that with these antibacterial cleansing products that have become ubiquitous. And you know, all of us are exposed every day to all of these chemical compounds that are designed as broad-spectrum bacteria killers. Um, and so, you know, it has become in our time actually much more important than it's ever been in the past for people to, you know, think about consciously uh, replenishing and diversifying bacterial populations in their gut with, um, uh, you know, probiotics and, and, and foods that have uh, uh, live bacteria in them. Um, and then, and then just, just, just to get back to this issue of, of, of fear of working with bacteria, you know, in fact, uh, you know, at least in the realm of fermenting raw plant material, 
something like fermenting vegetables. It is just intrinsically safe. There are no foods that are safer. Um, according to the USDA, there has never been a single case of food poisoning reported in the United States from fermented vegetables, and there are not many wow. foods that you could say that about. Wow. You couldn't say that, for instance, about raw vegetables, right? Because we, you know, we hear every year about um, you know outbreaks of illnesses uh, stemming from spinach, from lettuce, uh, from tomatoes, from almonds, from apples. It's it's kind of one one food after another. Um, and so, you know, there, there always exists the possibility of um, contamination. Usually it's runoff from, a, you know, from a factory farm uh, with animals up the hill. Um, but, but, you know, whatever the source of it, there's always the possibility of contamination. But if you took some vegetables that had been subjected to incidental contamination like that and fermented them, what you'd find is that the, the indigenous population of lactic acid bacteria would, would, would overwhelm, you know, any incidental contaminants. And then as the environment acidifies, as the, you know, lactic acid bacteria produce their acids, um, it would simply destroy any, um, uh, you know, incidental contaminating bacteria. So, so you could think of, you know, fermentation uh, as, as, a, um, as, as a strategy for safety. Wow. Thinking <laughs> when you're looking at it. Um, so then, uh, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned like, um, you know, what we, what we can do is we can start to, add in and we think about adding things that are probiotic in nature and anything but but um if people start you know it's, it's a little easier than say to say like hey you know i'm going to try to add different kinds of fermented foods to my diet than it is to say i'm going to take these probiotics which sounds so you know sterile and cold and capsule like and all and, and whereas like adding fermented foods to your world and your diet just sounds like it's a lot more fun and 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 in a way, well, and, and you know, it is. <laughs> you know? It, it is more fun. And when I say probiotic, I mean I, I define probiotic broadly. I mean, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. foods with live bacterial cultures are probiotic. Right. Um, so I'm not encouraging anybody to go, you know, buy supplements. Like I, I think that, like really, you do much better to eat a variety of different types of fermented foods with with their own unique populations of bacterial cultures. Um, you know, diversity is the name of the game when we're talking about bacteria and bacterial genetics. Bacteria are very genetically fluid, um, and uh, and they can um, they can shed genes that are not necessary in a given situation, and they can also acquire uh, genes that can help them to adapt to shifting environmental conditions. Um, so, so, so actually, as like a diversity of different types of bacteria is always better than you know. There's no, there's no super strains. There's no single strain that solves all of our problems. The, you know, the, 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 the best thing we can do for ourselves is expose ourselves to lots of different kinds of bacteria that are found in different types of fermented foods at different stages of their development. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what really helps to replenish and diversify our uh, microbial populations much, much better and more effectively than, uh, you know, any single super strain that someone's promoting as, you know, the, the best probiotic. Exactly. I mean, I, I personally don't take any, uh, you know, um, uh, probiotic capsules or anything like that. I just, I just eat lots of different um, uh, fermented foods. You know, you said, you just you mentioned the word culture, and of course, fermentation requiring cultures, and you mentioned diversity. So what I'm like always curious about is how you see, I mean, even in your own life, how how culture and diversity in those 
in in, in the food that you're eating and, and you know that's creating the food that you're eating how that relates on a macro level to the culture in diversity that you create in your own life on a on a larger level like on a you know what i'm talking about like yeah, more, sure. I mean, I think it's I think it's fascinating that we use the same word culture to describe um, so many different things. But uh, you know, at the one level, we talk about the communities of microorganisms as cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, when you make yogurt, you have to use a little bit of mature yogurt, you know, as a starter in order to you know introduce the community of bacteria that turns it into yogurt into the fresh milk that you want to turn into yogurt. We call this, uh, the, this, this group of mature yogurt that we introduce, we call that the culture. We call the act of introducing it, culturing it. Hmm. Um, and, and we use the same word, culture, to describe um, language, music, scientific knowledge, belief systems, um, religious practices, you know, all of these different big things. And it's the, the totality of all the things that we seek to pass down from generation to generation is uh, is culture, but you know, as a group, I would suggest that these um, you know live culture foods are more than incidental cultural novelties, and they they, they actually are uh, you know very important to cultural identity. If we if we you know look at the word culture, it comes from the Latin word for cultivation, mm. and so it, it, you know in some way it stems from the idea of cultivation of the soil and all of the other things that people have learned to cultivate. But I would say that um, you know agriculture cultivation in the soil would have no meaning without fermentation and other techniques for preserving the harvest because, you know, how could, mm-hmm. how could a society ever invest all of its energy into crops that are ready at certain moments of the year if they didn't have some insights into how to effectively store those crops to feed them through the rest of the year? Um, mm-hmm. so, so, so fermentation and cultured foods, I think, are very important uh, you know, in most cultural traditions, and, you know, I certainly don't know about every culinary tradition that exists on this earth, but I've been looking really hard for a decade and a half for a counterexample, and I can't find any examples of culinary traditions that do not incorporate fermentation in, in some way uh, or, or, or another. I mean, the ferments, uh, you know, in the Arctic Circle look very different than the ferments at, at the equator, but they're no less, uh, you know, uh, important to the ability of people to feed themselves, um, you know, and to cultural identity. Um, I, heard a, I heard a really fascinating story from a, a woman I've become friendly with, uh, Betty Steckmeyer, who, um, who started a business called Gem Cultures, and she sells food cultures. And among the food cultures that she has uh, uh, sold is a Finnish milk culture called Vili. And, uh, and the Vili that she sells was actually um, uh, uh, brought to this country by her husband's uncle. Um, and, um, you know, she found herself taking care of her husband's uncle uh, at the end of his life. And, uh, you know, one day he, 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 he called her into his room um, uh, with a sense of urgency, and she went in, and, uh, and his question was, um, uh, you're going to take care of, of, he called it the seed, you're going to take care of the seed, right? And she assured him that, you know, she'd been propagating it for 30 years. She was very attentive to it. She was going to take good care of it. And, uh, and he seemed relieved to hear that. And the next time she went into the room, he was dead. And, you know, it was as if his, you know, final concern, you know, on this earthly plane was, you know, being sure that somebody would take care of the culture. 
And so, you know, for his cultural identity as, you know, an immigrant who left, you know, one world and moved to another world, but brought this embodiment of, of, of the culture he grew up in with him, um, you know, it was, you know, for him to be at peace with the idea of dying, he needed some reassurance that this culture was going to be treasured and taken care of the way he has. Amazing. That's a great story. So um, lots of folks on HerbMentor.com hearing uh, and learning herbs in general community have gotten into uh, fermentation more and more, you know, the more they're involved in our site and hearing your past interview you've done. And, 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 and we're always talking about your, at least your first book, and now we're always talking about your second book. So there's been some questions that come up in the, I think of uh, anyone I've interviewed, more questions streamed in um, instantaneously when I announced that I was going to be interviewing you. So let's get to some of these. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do is, I think what I'll do is I'll just ask questions because there's a lot of questions from a lot of people and some overlap in this and that. So rather than say, so, you know, rather than say, you know, Joe asks this, I'm just going to ask the questions as if I'm asking them, but they're all from her mentor members. So um, the question, the first question here is, um, her question is, uh, how long do the fermented foods last? I know that's a wide open question with a lot of variables. So specifically, how long would dill pickles last and how long would vinegar that isn't pasteurized last? Um, okay, well, uh, dill pickles, uh, you know, in the refrigerator would last for months and months. They might eventually get kind of soft. Um, because of enzymes that are in all vegetables that break down the pectins, and they seem to be um, uh, more active or faster in waterier vegetables, of which cucumbers are, are, are a good example. Um, but, uh, but, you know, in a refrigerator, they, they should certainly retain their crispness, um, you know, assuming they were still crisp when you put them in the refrigerator for a couple of months. But as far as, like, you know, um, toxicity, you could leave them in there for 10 years and they wouldn't get toxic. Um, you know, like acidified foods stored in a mostly empty container. This is significant because if there's a lot of air in the container, then there's the potential for mold that can really degrade things. Um, but highly acidic and salty foods in the refrigerator will never go toxic. Wow. Um, what was the second food that you wanted uh, an evaluation of the uh, time frame for? Oh, well, you know, she's asking about the dill pickles and then the difference between that and the vinegar um, pickles. Like, Okay, so, 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 so vinegar, I mean, you know, even unpasteurized vinegar, um, you know, should be shelf-stable for, for a very, very long time, for years. But mm -hmm. it depends a little bit on how it's packaged. Um, if it remains sealed in a full bottle, then there's no reason it wouldn't, it wouldn't be good for years and years. Once you get down into a half-full bottle, that's a bottle that is half-full with oxygen. Um, and if the vinegar is not pasteurized, then acetobacter, the bacteria that convert alcohol into acetic acid, um, if they, in the presence of, of oxygen, they can actually digest acetic acid. Um, and so, so in, 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 a, um, in a jar that's not well sealed or that has a lot of airspace, the acidity will actually diminish over time. Um, so, you know, the, so the answer has to be contingent on, um, you know, being well sealed in a narrow-necked bottle that is mostly full. Mm -hmm. um, and if you see, like, this, I'm just throwing this question in, if you, if you go on your pickles and, and you go in the fridge and you... 
and then there's some one hit in the top there and it's got mold on it or something or or something like what how would you deal with that i mean it doesn't mean the whole jar is bad right no 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 i would just um i well first of all as a storage strategy i would say once your jars in the fridge of foods that you're eating slowly get to be half full try mm -hmm. to transfer them to smaller jars that will be mostly full Good tip. um and then you'll have a lot less problems like that but, um, no, I mean, I would just, uh, you know, if, if half of a cucumber was sticking up and started to get a little mold developing on the surface of it, I would just cut that cucumber in half and throw the moldy half in the compost and eat the half that remained submerged and didn't get molded. Great. The same with sauerkraut, and, then, right? and the same is true in general, like even outside of the refrigerator. Um, I mean, that's the biggest... Uh that people face in fermenting vegetables is that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're creating the surface to submerge the vegetables and protect them from the air, but unless you, you're working with a pretty cleverly engineered fermentation system, the, um, the surface is always going to be exposed to air, and, and uh, especially in warm weather, will, will tend towards mold growth. So if molds grow on your surface, just, you know, as soon as you notice it, try to scrape it off, skim it off as best you can. Um, and don't worry about it. Okay, thank you. So uh, next question was uh, curious on how long it takes to build up a healthy gut flora with the consumption of fermented food. So how long? Oh, I, I mean, that's a hard question to, to answer. I mm. mean, I mean, I would just say do it. Don't worry about how long it takes. Just start start doing it now. I mean, I would guess how long it takes depends a little bit on, you know, how bad of shape you're in. Right, you know, um, well, in this but, case, but you first introduce these foods slowly in small quantities, mm -hmm. um, you know, give yourself some time to, to, to get used to it. Sometimes people who, you know, just have, have not eaten a lot of uh, live culture foods, when they start eating them, they, you know, they go through some changes um, uh, that, that sometimes can be um, uh, fleetingly uncomfortable. Um, but uh, I would just say eat small quantities. Like regularity is more important than eating huge quantities. You know, eating these foods, you know, uh, uh, every day or, 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 or at least frequently. And also incorporating different types of fermented foods, having not only sauerkraut, but, you know, yogurt or kefir, mm -hmm. um, um, or experimenting with different types of what I group together as sour tonic beverages, which are these lightly fermented um, probiotic beverages. I mean, there's lots of different types of foods and beverages you can introduce into, into your uh, uh, diet, um, but, um, you know, just, just, just eating small amounts frequently, I think, really helps uh, um, um, you know, change the microbial ecology in, in your diet much uh, much more effectively than just, you know, eating a huge amount at once. In, in her case, she uh, has a, um, there's a nine-year-old boy, he's 50 pounds, he needs to strengthen his immune system, and he gets sick a lot. And so um, basically, you know, she was, she was kind of speaking in terms of dosage and all and wondering, you know, for, so, so you're saying, so for this boy, same kind of thing. It's like try some variety and little bits. And, and stuff. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, re recently I went to uh, a, a, um, a conference that was mostly parents and uh, caregivers for um, um, children with autism. Mm. Um, and, you know, a lot of the discussion was about, you know, sort of ways to, you know, get these live culture foods into the diets of kids who might be really picky about what they eat. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this one, this one mom who I, who I had a long conversation with was telling me that she'll make um, popsicles, fruit juice popsicles, and just put a couple of teaspoons of, um, 
of um, uh, sauerkraut juice into that. Oh, that's great. Um, so, so, you know, I think, you know, whatever, you know, if you can get your kid to eat sauerkraut, well, that's great. But if you can't, there's ways, you know, there's ways that you can maybe, um, you know, uh, hide some of the juice into something that they do like to eat. And, and often and the yogurt, yo- oh, yogurt, kefir often are, are pretty kid-friendly, too. Yeah. Know? Yeah, so that that's another example, because she also had asked for some examples, and that's great. I like that, the popsicle. Popsicles are always great to hide a lot of things in. We do use them a lot in the herbal, <laughs> in the herbal and world. And I mean, per- personally, like any anytime I make something like a salad dressing, mm-hmm. like I'll always throw a little bit of sauerkraut juice in it. It's, you know, it's sort of like a, it's almost a universal ingredient for me. <laughs> that's awesome. I got another question here about uh, brassicas and that she says they should be avoided by those with hypothyroid. Is that true with sauerkraut? Um, I, I am not a huge expert on this, but the one article that I have found on this question said that um, uh, uh, the, 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 the same uh, goitrogens that are found in, uh, in, 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 in cabbage and other cruciferous vegetables are still found in them after they're fermented. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I would say, you know, the answer to people like that is ferment different kinds of vegetables. I mean, some of the, be- the one of my favorite sauerkrauts I've written in my life was made with celery. It mm. was uh, celery root, celery stalks, celery leaves, and celery uh, uh, seeds. It made an incredibly wonderful ferment. Um, uh, carrot ginger is a really popular combination. But, um, you know, if there are certain vegetables that you need to avoid, um, you can ferment with different vegetables. I, I, wish, I wish I could tell you that sauerkraut removed the goitrogens, but the information that I've been able to find on this question is that they don't. It okay. doesn't. Um, can beet kvass be made out of whey and replaced with just salt? You mean made without whey? Wait, sorry. Yes. I'm going to say that again. Can beet kvass be made without whey and replaced with just salt? Yeah, that's how that's how I typically make my oh, beet kvass. Okay. Uh, so so okay, kvass is a Russian beverage that's typically made out of um, dry rye bread, um, and it, it's basically the, the dry bread is re-fermented as a, as, a, as a beverage, and it's really delicious, and it's so iconic in in Russian culture that any kind of a sour beverage is called kvass. So beet kvass is basically a uh, you know fermented infusion of beets. You take a beet or two, uh, chop it coarsely into cubes, put it in a jar, you know, make sure, you know, the, the jar needs to be no more than a quarter full of, um, of beet pieces. Fill the jar with, with water, uh, dechlorinated water. Anytime you're, you're adding water to a ferment, uh, if you're on a municipal water system, um, try to dechlorinate the water, uh, you know, either with a carbon filter um, or you can evaporate out uh, chlorine. Um, uh, so so cover, cover the beets with water, fill up the jar with water, and then I just add a pinch of salt to that, and that's it. Um, you know, Sally Fallon has popularized the idea of using whey as a starter for beet cloth and sauerkraut and, uh, and, and, and many other ferments. And certainly if you uh, have access to, to whey, if you have some dairy fermentation process in your life and you're producing a lot of whey, um, you can absolutely do that and, and it can work beautifully, but you do not require whey. All vegetables are, 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 are covered with lactic acid bacteria, and there is you know, no necessity to add any kind of a starter to any vegetable ferment working with raw vegetables. I, I think beet kvass has to be one of the most um, 
nourishing, instantaneously nourishing feeling drinks I've ever had. You know, you drink that, you just feel your whole body just... It's like you're oh, I am so with you. That is just <laughs> such a powerful tonic. I love it. So I, I, I just love it when uh, when I open the refrigerator and there's, you know, my wife's made it. So, you know. um, so of course, I um, can I make learned, it too, I which learned is better from at it. A, from a team of um, uh, uh, Canadian uh, uh, um, uh, Russian Jewish women um, that uh, about lettuce kvass. In a, 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 a tradition um, uh, of, of, of basically making a liquid infusion of lettuce and fermenting that, and that's really quite delicious. Also, the the process is pretty much identical uh, uh, to the beet kvass process, except to use lettuce instead of beet. Cool. Um, you know, I mean, the flavor is not quite as rich, but right. it's uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a nice uh, sour tonic beverage. Nice. So um, here's an interesting question. It's probably common about people that you you you, you do talks or you know, new people at it. That she's um, and I also get with this question often with people you know with herbal things as well is uh, you know getting your loved ones over the uh, the yuck factor and um, and then I said her boyfriend fears it'll be worse for be it'll be worse that rather than better for his tendency towards yeast infections, which is interesting. Another separate question, mm. but. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, uh, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation out there about um, you know the, the necessity to you know avoid all fermented foods if you're dealing with the yeast infection, mm. and I think it does make sense to avoid um, uh, you know uh, heavily carbohydrate-based foods if you're dealing with yeast infections, uh, and and certain ferments are are heavily carbohydrate-based, um, you know, bread, alcoholic beverages. Um, kombucha, uh, you know, many ferments really are based on, you know, sugar or other forms of carbohydrates. But, um, you know, some of the ferments that are not, uh, you know, heavy carbohydrate ferments, such as vegetable ferments, such as milk ferments, um, and that have these live lactic acid bacteria in them, what's powerful about them is that, um, you know, the bacteria and the, uh, you know, sort of repopulating of the gut with these bacteria can be, you know, a really effective way of restoring balance so that the, so that the yeast that are, that are overgrown in your body are brought under control by the bacteria. Hmm. Very cool. And I imagine um, getting over the yuck factor is just, uh, I always just say start with things that people are familiar with already, you know, yogurt and, and pickles, things like that. And then Yeah, absolutely. And uh, another thing is like try lightly fermented vegetables rather than heavily fermented vegetables. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the strong smell that develops over time that sometimes people recoil from. <laughs> and if you just ferment them for a few days, they really are no less probiotic um, but, but, but the flavors are, you know, they're, they're more familiar. They're not as, uh, you know, they're, they're not as challenging to people. Hmm. Um, and, you know, certainly people, like everybody eats fermented foods every day. By one scholar's estimates, one-third of all food that human beings put in our mouths has been subjected to fermentation. So, you know, the most common foods that everyone eats every day, bread, coffee, uh, cheese, you know, these are all products of fermentation. So I think, you know, rather than, you know, emphasizing the, you know, exoticness of it and the strong flavors, you know, for people who are, um, you know, a little bit squeamish about it, you know, just, just you know, emphasizing the everydayness of it. 
Um, you know, all of the condiments that people love to put on their foods, either they're directly fermented, uh, you know, such as soy sauce and, and fish sauce, um, or else they use uh, vinegar, which is a product of fermentation, uh, you know, as a means of stabilizing them. And, you know, so even, you know, our commonest, our most, our most common American condiments, you know, mayonnaise, mustard, and ketchup, those are all based on, on, on vinegar as a stabilizer. So, uh, you know, really, like, these foods are not all so, um, you know, kind of exotic and, and, and extreme, and almost all of them can be made with either, you know, stronger flavors, if that's what you desire, or milder flavors, if that's what you desire, and most of that corresponds with length of fermentation, hmm. because the acidity accumulates over time. So you could ferment your vegetables for two or three days, or for two or three weeks, or for two or three months, and you'll get very, very different flavors depending on how long you ferment them for. And that's one of the great things about fermenting them yourself, is you're, you know, you're not... You know, you're, you don't have to eat things that are, you know, made to, you know, somebody else's idea of, um, you know, of, of, of how strong it is or what's desirable. Um, when I did my cross-country sauerkraut road, uh, road show when, um, when wild fermentation first came out, um, I, I, I began with six-week-old sauerkraut that I was serving people, and at a certain point I ran out of sauerkraut, and I started serving people two- or three-day-old sauerkraut that I had made at my demonstrations just a couple of days earlier. And at first I was really um, embarrassed to be serving such young sauerkraut because it's not really very you know, strong at that point. But I got so much feedback from people telling me that's the best sauerkraut I ever had in my life, or you know, I thought I hated sauerkraut, but I love that. And so, you know, one of the beautiful things about making it yourself is you can make it the way you like it. And if, you know, if you're trying to cater to someone who is squeamish about strong flavors, make them something that doesn't have strong flavors. Yeah, something to do with all that cabbage that you grow, too. Boy. Um, yeah. So uh, Kathleen here, she's, uh, she's a little hardcore here. She goes, uh, this, is, this is a good question. Do you... Firstly, do you think that fermented foods could be safely stored in a root cellar? She has, um, she has, I have trouble finding room for all my ferments in my fridge. This is long-term storage. For example, the 25 pounds of pickles I make every summer. So not stuff that she's going to be able to eat in a few weeks. So, um, so how, what's your, um, uh, your... Yes, ab absolutely. I mean, understand that the context in which these foods developed was before people had refrigerators. You know, refrigeration is a phenomenon of the 20th century. People have been doing this for thousands of years. You know, this was how people preserved vegetables when they didn't have refrigerators and, and freezers. And if you don't, you know, if you want to store it, in, if you have a cellar, that's the ideal, that's the ideal place because that, you know, the, 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 the cellar stays more or less the earth temperature. So it stays, you know, cool in the summer and uh, things don't freeze but still stay cool in the winter. You know, it stays somewhere between 55 and 60 degrees, and that's ideal. Yes, you absolutely can safely uh, store ferments for a very long time. I, I've, I'm actually getting to the very end of a 55-gallon barrel of radish sauerkraut that, um, that I made in November, and now it's July, so that is, or no, I'm sorry, it's June, so that is, uh, you know, seven months old now. Yeah, and radishes, uh, and it's, been, it's never been great. in a refrigerator. It's been in the cellar wow. the whole time. Radish. That's with, with cucumber pickles, you know, you have this issue of them getting softer, which which mm -hmm. which which could happen depending depending uh, on how you know how warm your your root cellar might get to. But that's the worst that'll happen is they'll start to get soft. They certainly won't get toxic. There's mm -hmm. no safety concern at all. Right. Okay. Great. Um, 
So, another question here. Uh, does fermented food help the skin to fight off fungal infections? Hmm. Um, sure, and I, I mean, I've actually heard of people using it topically. Oh. Wow. You know, I've heard of people, you know, um, um, uh, you know, soaking, soaking their 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 fungal infested toes in sauerkraut juice or vinegar um, as as a means of treating that. Wow! So there's a lot. Uh, of I've heard of people using um, uh, you know, yogurt on on uh, on yeast infections also. Sure, sure. It's like the instead of the laying on of the leaves, it's a laying on of the pickles. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's just it's a poultice. Yeah, it's a poultice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I actually heard, I, I heard a really dramatic story from this uh, elderly Russian-born woman who I met in Australia a few years ago, um, and her, her husband was dealing with a, um, a skin cancer uh, that was on his ear, and he was scheduled for surgery to have it removed, and this woman had a dream, and in her dream, uh, her grandmother, who had been dead for many years by this point, uh, appeared in the dream and reminded her that when she was a little girl in Russia, uh, people would use sauerkraut poultices on any kind of a skin irregularity. And in the morning, when her husband woke up, he, she told him about this dream and talked him into letting her put a sauerkraut poultice on her ear, on, on his ear, and, um, you know, and, and the cancer disappeared before the scheduled surgery. No. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, in, 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 in this case, it was, it was, it was effective. Wow. Wow. Um, that's great. And, and, I mean, it's, it's well established that sauerkraut has um, uh, compounds called isothiocyanates that are, that are regarded as potent anti-carcinogenic compounds. Um, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, in, you know, if you got diagnosed with brain cancer, if you would want to, you know, just treat it with sauerkraut, I'm a little bit skeptical of that myself. But, um, but um, you know, no, knowing that these compounds are in it, I think that they're, you know, incorporating food like this into your diet is a, is a, is a great way of, um, you know, diminishing your chances of developing a cancer. Huh. A couple questions here on, on, on kefir. Um, <clears throat> she's been drinking it for 10 days now. On the second day of fermenting, I add... Um, she adds teas for twice the punch. Interesting. I love kefir and have not had any bouts of reflux since using it. So how much can she drink a day? Oh, uh, but, well, okay. I mean, I, I, I'm, it's not clear to me whether she's talking about milk kefir or water kefir. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, with either one of them, I wouldn't be so concerned about any maximum amount per day. But what I would do is not just start right off the bat by drinking a quart a day. Mm. Um, you know, start, start with a few ounces, see how that sits with you. The next day, try having a cup of it see how that sits with you. And I mean, I would just say, you know, increase it gradually. Um, I have not, you know, heard any particular problems ever from, you know, people drinking too much kefir. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't suggest any particular quantity as the maximum amount, but I also don't think that there's, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, great benefit to drinking a huge amount of it. I mean, really, if you drank a glass a day of kefir and could do that every day, you'd be in good shape. Great. And you can store the grains in the fridge, right? And you're not using them? Well, you know, all of these scobies, that, that's what, you know, the kefir uh, uh, is in the form of these little rubbery blobs that are, that are frequently referred to as kefir grains. 
And, you know, they, they want to be fed more or less continuously. I mean, having, having these SCOBYs, these, uh, you know, cultures that have evolved into distinctive physical forms, is a little bit like having a pet. Um, you know, you just have to keep on feeding it. Um, and, you know, like, like most pets can take a certain amount of neglect. Most, you know, these cultures can take a certain amount of neglect. Um, you know, their, their nutritional requirements are slowed down if you put them in the refrigerator. But, you know, you still eventually need to feed them. Um, so what I usually do when, if I go, if I go out of town is I leave my kefir grains, uh, you know, in, um, in milk, which is their, you know, sort of favored, um, 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 uh, food, nutritive medium. Um, and I just leave them in the refrigerator, which slows them down. But then as soon as I get home, I, I try to feed them right away and, and feed them frequently and, you know, kind of pamper them a little bit. Um, and I, I, I certainly have left kefir grains for too long and had them, uh, you know, just kind of um, dematerialize into the milk. Okay, good, thank you. Um, now we got a question here about uh, meads and wines from wild yeast. So when fermenting meads or wines from wild, actually wild or cultivated yeast, do you kill the yeast before bottling or let the yeast reach its maximum alcohol level uh, and sweeten to the desired level, and then bottle. Um, she says she's always used it. You always used Camden tablets prior to bottling, but she's curious about your experience in not killing before bottling. Yeah, I have never used Camden tablets before bottling, and I have never heated up my 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 beverage before bottling. Um, I I just I I mean I I I leave them in the carboy with the airlock. I mean until the, until visible fermentation has ceased. And then I rack it, which is siphoning it into another carboy and leaving behind yeast residue. Um, and then I'll usually top it off with some fresh um, uh, uh, sugar water if it's a wine, honey water if it's a mead, and let that continue to ferment until it stops again. And then I'll bottle them. And I've just, it's, never, it's, never, it's never been a problem. Um, I've been really, you know, pleased with the consistent qualities of the, you know, wild fermentation wines and needs that, 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 that I've made. And, um, and uh, you know, when I first started getting interested in fermentation, I, I, I definitely, you know, surveyed the hobby literature of beer and winemaking. And, you know, I saw all of, you know, that, that, that it called for, you know, these, these, these tablets, tablets to, you know, sort of kill all the wild organisms that are in whatever the liquid that you want to ferment is. Um, and all these, you know, different new, yeast nutrients that you could buy. And, uh, you know, it just seemed, it seemed very, very complicated. And I had this contrasting experience from earlier in my life before I specifically got interested in fermentation. But I spent, uh, I, I spent a few months um, um, uh, traveling with a friend of mine in West Africa. And, uh, you know, every little village we found ourselves in, people offered us homemade alcoholic beverages, usually out of open vessels. And, you know, I, 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 you know, they were fermenting beverages. They did not have airlocks or carboys. They certainly did not have access to Camden tablets. They didn't have stores they could go to where they could, you know, buy different isolated strains of yeast or yeast nutrients. And so this was just kind of a confusing question for me for, for a couple of years. You know, why, why is the hobby literature making it so complicated and telling me that I need all these special things when all these, uh, you know, people in villages, uh, you know, who didn't have access to these things were making 
drinking wonderful alcoholic beverages. And, um, you know, the, 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 the first um, sort of, you know, key to unlocking this paradox for me was uh, um, a self-published Ethiopian uh, cookbook that I, you know, just randomly um, uh, encountered in a friend's bookshelf. Um, and it had a recipe for Ethiopian-style mead. Um, and it basically was, you know, honey, water, stir, stir, stir. And so I started making alcoholic beverages like that. I usually add some, um, you know, some sort of a fruit, and fruit is all covered with yeast. It's really mm. easy to get, you know, any ferment started if you add some some fresh fruit to it, um, you know, especially fruits with edible skins. Like I just just uh, in the past week, I made um, I made beautiful plum wine, and uh, you know, within 12 hours, it was vigorously bubbly because we had such a high density of plums with all of their um, uh, 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 yeast that are on the skins of them um, uh, in it. Um, so I've just never, I've never used the sort of more common, you know, high tech approaches. I, I, I recognize that those are kind of, you know, dominant, um, uh, you know, in, in our time. Um, you know, I, I use, you know, what, what some would consider to be cruder. I prefer to think of them as just, you know, sort of lower tech approaches to it. Right. Okay. Which... Which, I mean, me personally in that, I don't mind doing that if I'm making a small bottle or something or even a gallon. But sometimes when I take the effort or whatever to did five, you know, to make a five-gallon batch of wine, I sometimes don't want to risk the wild, you know, it not tasting yeah. good. I mean, I understand, I understand the perspective. I will say that, you know, I mean, in 15 years of doing it this way, 18 years of doing it this way, I mean... I have hardly ever had had bad batches. I, I I feel really good about the you know the quality of the mm. of the um, uh, beverages that that wild yeast produce. You know, one perspective on it is that you know until the 1860s, every alcoholic beverage that was ever made anywhere was made with wild yeast. Right. And right. so all of our traditions derive from that. And still today, the highest quality beers and wines are made with wild yeasts. Wow. Um, uh, you know the, the 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 lambic beers of Belgium, for instance, are all wild yeast beers. Um, so you know, even even though I guess it's much easier to get um, you know consistent results by adding by 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 adding um, you know yeast that have been selected and propagated, um, you know for 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 various uh, characteristics such as alcohol tolerance. Um, <clears throat> You know, it, it, it is still recognized that the you know the highest quality, the the you know the most complex flavors derive from um, you know communities of wild organisms that are you know indigenous to you know all of the foods that we eat. Okay, great. Um, this is a great question from Hamela. Um, I was making a, a, a batch of kimchi. She had some turmeric because she didn't have enough ginger. So it occurred to me, she says, it occurred to me, garlic, onions, turmeric are strong, and they're microbials. So how does the fermentation work? Why aren't the fermentation bacteria killed by this? And will this fermentation even work with turmeric? So she hasn't tried that before. Well, yes, it'll work with, 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 with turmeric. And, um, you know, turmeric is no more antimicrobial than ginger is. I mean, ginger also is antimicrobial. Right. So is garlic. I mean, but really what they are is mold inhibitors is functionally how they work in the sauerkraut. The, the lactic acid bacteria can, can, can grow perfectly well in them. Right. Um, and, uh, Interesting. 
yeah. mold so, inhibitor. So, so, but, so, you know, the yeah. things that we think of as antimicrobial, you know, they're not necessarily things that, you know, kill every kind of microorganism. They're mm-hmm. things which create a selective environment that certain kinds of organisms can tolerate and other kinds of organisms cannot. Hmm. So, the, you know, the lactic acid bacteria, which is found on all raw plant material, um, you know, the, 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 the plants that are, that, that, are, that are regarded as antimicrobial can tolerate lactic acid, or, or lactic acid bacteria can c- tolerate those because they're found on those plants. Okay. Wow. Um, how about uh, Mary wondering if fermented foods tend to raise glucose levels? Good question. Um, I'm not exactly like it, like in, in, in the blood, in our bodies. I, I, I can't really yeah, that's true. That that's that's kind sorry. of not a completely, uh, yeah, detailed question. So, um, and, and also, you know, I mean, I, I also just have to emphasize a little bit, like I really am not a healthcare practitioner, right. you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm a guy who likes to make food and, you know, I've gotten to, you know, uh, uh write and talk about my food and done a certain amount of research about it, but I, I am, I am just not a healthcare practitioner and, you know, there's, there's a certain level of, um, of, of uh, you know, questions that people have about the effects of these foods in their bodies that I, I'm just not equipped to answer, unfortunately. Okay, and a um, couple of questions here, um, kind of similar, and I'll see if I can just kind of hybrid and put them together, is, um, and it was around um, storage, and we already talked about that they can last, you know, a long time, and we talked about the root cellar one. Now, the, the question of the root cellar person was like, hey, she's got a root cellar, so she has that cool place where she can put that, but here's a person who whose husband uh, doesn't seem to be happy with anything, you know, lasting in the fridge because it must take up that real estate, and uh, was wondering, um, is there... You know what spot in the, what other spots in the house, for example, might you recommend people put them if they don't, you know, have enough fridge space? Well, I mean, for one thing, is like you don't have to make things in huge batches that require long-term storage. Right. I mean, you know, for 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 people who don't have a a cellar and don't have a lot of space in the refrigerator, what I would suggest really is make small batches. Right. I mean, you know the uh, the. Um, you know, historical purpose of this food was to sort of use the harvest and preserve foods for the long winter. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that anybody with the technology to be listening to this program, um, you know, can buy vegetables through the winter. So maybe you don't need to make a 50-gallon batch to go through a whole winter, and maybe you're better off working in, you know, gallon-sized batches and making a new batch every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just have a smaller quantity to store. That said, I will say that, you know, in most, in most uh, living environments, you can, you can find microclimates. Um, so, you know, I think about certain spots in my house as being warm spots, because sometimes in my fermentation practice, I'm looking to get something going faster. Maybe I'm uh, trying to make some dough for bread, and I want it to be in a warm place, and maybe I'll put it on top of my refrigerator. The refrigerators generate a little bit of heat, and so the top of the refrigerator is a warm place. Or maybe I'll turn on the illuminating light in my oven and, and let that be an incubation chamber. Uh-huh. Um, and similarly, um, you know, maybe there's just a place that never gets any light that stays cooler than the rest of your home. Maybe there's just a little corner where it stays, you know, three degrees cooler. So you can just experiment with different spots in your home and, 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 and you know, figure out where, where the you know, cooler spots and where the warmer spots are. And, you know, and an, another option, too, is if you needed just a little bit of space, um, 
you can usually hop on Craigslist and get a used small little you know fridge for twenty or thirty bucks. And if that's a you know to, even if that's a place to put just a few of your jars, if a person in your house doesn't, that's enough. Sure, sure, sure. There's a, there's a big tradition in Korea where people have a, like a uh, an extra refrigerator that's smaller that they call their kimchi refrigerator. Oh. And they just use it for storing kimchi. Yeah, and I sometimes saw... sometimes sometimes they keep it at a more moderate temperature. And I was looking at the uh, your book in your book in the color plates, and you have like a picture of uh, um, kind of a modified refrigerator where you make salami. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I mean that's yeah. Um, so you know a lot of if if you know most fermentations involve somehow manipulating environmental conditions, and so you know the, 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 historically a food like salami was only made in the late fall. And so, you know, you make it when the temperatures are getting cooler, and that's when it's cool enough to, um, uh, to, to, to ferment it and cure it. Um, but, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, can, can rig up a refrigerator to stay, you know, somewhere around 57 degrees Fahrenheit rather than, you know, the typical 38 degrees Fahrenheit, then what you can do is simulate the temperature range uh, that's required uh, uh, to do the fermentation. You know, and I, you know, Sandra, I really appreciate you answering these questions because, um, gosh, when I look in your book, it's like I could come up with a day's worth of questions. So it was great to get some people's real life practical situations that they're having to kind of go a little more in depth there, a way, you know, that we could do that. Um, and so, well, great. Let, let me let me just also point out that in in my new book, The Art of Fermentation, <laughs> uh, at the end at the end of each chapter is uh, is a little section on troubleshooting, um, uh, where where you know I've tried to anticipate what some of the you know questions or or um, uh, challenges that people might face in those types of ferments. I I love when folks I'm interviewing just like start to answer my next question for me, and I'm like, oh, uh, great! I don't even have to ask it. <laughs> so I was actually wanted to talk about your book, and um, you know, so people could understand. Like, so how how is this uh, organized? Because you have a great introduction on things, but gosh, you have section after section. It's just it's a thick book, like three. What is it? Four almost five hundred pages. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know I worked for two solid years on it, um, and uh, you know I tried to I tried to put uh, you know as much of the accumulated wisdom that I have gleaned from you know my experiences and my correspondences and correspond and, and conversations with people um, uh, in it. Uh, the first couple of chapters are are, are pretty broad. Uh, chapter one is called uh, "Fermentation as a Coevolutionary Force." Uh, and it just tries to sort of broaden the context for talking about fermentation and relating it to, um, uh, you know, issues of evolution. Uh, the second chapter is called The Practical Benefits of Fermentation, and then talk about the preservation benefits of fermentation, the health benefits of fermentation, fermentation as a strategy for energy efficiency, and also the flavors of fermentation, which are really what got me in, interested in the first place. I have a chapter on basic concepts and equipment, um, and then I get into um, uh, different types of ferments. Uh, and so the chapters are organized around um, uh, fermenting sugars into alcohol, fermenting vegetables, fermenting sour tonic beverages, fermenting grains and starchy tubers, fermenting milk, fermenting beers and other grain-based alcoholic beverages, 
then a chapter on growing mold cultures, fermenting bean seeds and nuts, fermenting meat, fish, and eggs, then a chapter on considerations for con- commercial enterprises, and then finally a chapter on no- non-food applications of fermentation, uh, uses of fermentation in um, uh, agriculture, fiber arts, um, uh, energy production, uh, and other, uh, uh, other applications, bioremediation. Wonderful. And the cool thing about it, too, is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a constant reference guide for folks. So, you know, it's, you're not going to read it all at once. You know, you maybe pick up a chapter here and there. But when you want to make beet kvass, you can open it up and just do that. You know, when you yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what it's intended as, as a, yeah. as a reference work. Exactly. So it's, it's, and it's uh, very thorough. And, yeah. And so, um, so do you like, like, you can buy it on your you can get it right off your website. I mean, of course, you yeah, can you can it buy it on my website, wildfermentation.com. If there's a local bookstore you like, I would love if you would encourage them to order it and buy it through them. You certainly could find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart.com. You know, any of those like big booksellers. But you know, better to buy it directly from me or from a local bookstore. That's why I like to mention that because uh, we always want to support the herbalists here on Herbmentor Radio. So I always like to ask people. You know, where would you prefer people purchase your book? You know, so uh, some people don't don't ship, you know, from their websites, and you do. So just I'm just presencing that. So go to wildfermentation.com to buy it, folks. And um, you know, Sandra, I hope you had as much fun here as you had on Fresh Air. No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I was. Did you well, get to this, go to this like was a, a little bit more relaxed for me? Did, did um, you... But I've had a great time talking to you, and um, and I really appreciate your continued interest in this. And um, I'm glad to hear that your your listeners are are interested in this. And um, I hope some of them will will check out my book and go deeper with their uh, fermentation practices. Thanks so much, and everyone. WildFermentation.com also has a list of. Sanders live uh, events. So if he's teaching or he's speaking anywhere, you can go there. And he also has lists of other uh, folks' fermentation events around the country. So it's a great site to check in on from time to time. And then you can go meet him in person and take your book with you and get it signed, right? <laughs> so, yes, indeed. So Sander Kess, thanks so much for joining us today on Herbenter Radio. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor news, home remedy secrets, and supermarket herbalism. You'll also find the herbal medicine making kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.